So getting lots of responses to the question on YouTube, and so if you joined us a little bit late, uh, we're thinking about all the things that we can't do right now, and one of those is we can't really have good old church potluck suppers and dinners on the ground, and, and so I ask people, what, are you, what do you miss about dinner on the ground? What is something that is your favorite thing to get when you go to a church potluck supper uh, that uh, you uh, aren't currently able to get right now? And we've got a lot of responses so far. Um, we've got, it uh, seems like the desserts seem to be a very popular response right now, not surprisingly. Uh, we got a shout out from Miss Esther Hernandez of Slaw. So Esther, your Slaw makes a pretty big impact on somebody out there. Um, we've got a couple of shout outs on uh, uh, Miss Ella Derrick, Miss Ella's Tea Cakes, and also her chocolate pie has gotten a vote. Um, we've gotten uh, several votes for deviled eggs, which is one of my favorite things. Um, and uh, then we uh, also, let's see, we've got uh, Vicki Frost fried okra. So Vicki, your fried okra is pretty popular there. Several things there. So a lot of those things we miss and wish that we were able to have. And I'm sorry I brought that up right before lunch. So I'll try to get you out of here as quickly as possible. If you got a copy of God's Word, I ask you to open up to Psalm 103 as we finish today our series through the Psalms. We've been doing this through the summer. Uh, but now that we're at the beginning of August, we're going to transition into a fall series. Um, and uh, when we began this, we knew there was no way we could exhaust all of the Psalms, 150 Psalms. That would take us uh, over a year to be able to, over two years, probably three years almost, to be able to do that. Um, and it would probably take us at least 20 weeks to exhaust Psalm 119. But we picked out several Psalms, some that are familiar, some that are not quite as familiar and been walking through them and looking at them, and, and hopefully this has been an encouragement and a blessing to you. Today we're in Psalm 103, and the psalmist says over and over and over again in this psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Just one thing to announce to you before we look at the message this morning, and that is that today we have a time of prayer in partnership with our First Priority Clubs here in Decatur uh, for our schools and so this is, uh, we, we, are, we are very honored to be able to partner with First Priority. We have several people in our church that work with First Priority Clubs throughout our, our Morgan County and Lawrence County. Um, and so every year, First Priority sponsors a prayer walk time over all of our campuses in, in Morgan and Lawrence County. And our partnership school this year is Austinville Elementary School. So Jamie Early, our, our student minister, is going to be at Austinville leading that time of prayer. Uh, it'll be a socially distanced time of prayer where people will gather. You'll be given a prayer guide. You'll have the opportunity to just pray at your leisure uh, around the school. If you don't feel comfortable getting out in the crowd with people that you don't know, you can still go to the school and stay in your car and just kind of do a drive-by praying if you would like to and park there in the parking lot and just pray over that school. Or you can just pray in your home if you would like to around 6 o'clock. Um, but whatever it is, you don't have to go to Austinville. If you have children that are at another school or grandchildren that are at a school that are, that are dear to your heart and you want to pray for that, then you can do that. You can go to the school that's closest to your home and they will, there will be someone there representing First Priority and representing a church that will be leading that time and that will be at 6 o'clock tonight. So we encourage you to take part in that if you would, please. As I said a second ago, uh, we are in Psalm 103 this morning, and this is another psalm that can be classified as a, as a psalm of descriptive praise. Last week we looked at Psalm 121, and we said that that's what uh, is happening in that psalm. The, the psalmist is praising God, but he's, he's praising God for certain features of who God is and what He has done. And this psalm is very similar in its genre to Psalm 121. But in today's psalm, we're going to see that the writer is specifically giving blessing and praise to the Lord and describes for us both the character of God and the ways that God works in the salvation of his people. So while this is a psalm of descriptive praise, it's not just a praise about the general characteristic of God or, or even a psalm about how God blesses us generally, but specifically about how God blesses us in the salvation of his people. And so with that in mind, I invite you to read with me Psalm 103, and then we're going to break this down and try to go through each of the verses. It's, it, you'll, if you have, want to take notes, there are notes available in the pew racks in front of you, and you'll see there are a lot of blanks. I'm going to be going through this very fast, so try to keep up and write. If you miss a blank, let me know, and I'll help you out. 
so let's look at Psalm 103, and, and it tells us at the beginning of the title of this psalm that this is a psalm that was written by David. And so it says, David the writer writes in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's the theme of this, of this psalm. You're going to see it repeated several times. And all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Can you see the theme of this psalm, which is blessing the Lord. It's something that is repeated over and over and over again. It's a, it's a, it's, David is expressing an attitude of personal worship to God. Specifically, he is centralizing his thoughts on praising God and ascribing blessing to the Lord. It's, a, it's, it's not just saying praise the Lord. He's saying bless the Lord. It's not just saying worship the Lord. He's saying bless the Lord. There's a, there's a focused attitude in his worship where he wants to give blessing to God for all that God has done and all that God is. So to understand what David is trying to do here, we need to, we need to pause and think for a moment about what do we mean by blessing? When we see in the Bible, the Bible says that that, that we bless the Lord or that, that we are blessed. What do we mean by that? Well, there's really two ways to think of blessing. There's thinking about the way God blesses us. And when we speak of God's blessing of us, we are talking about how God sometimes can supernaturally intervene in the course of our lives to bring aid or help or strength to help our circumstances or our situation be better off than they were before he intervened. That's what we mean when we say, God has blessed me. We mean that, that there was something in our life and God intervened in, in, in his sovereign supernatural way and changed our circumstances, made them better than they were before. It could be the blessing of receiving uh, something, some, some unforeseen financial blessing at a, very, at a very difficult time in your life. It could be the blessing of receiving healing from God for, for a sickness or a disease. But we're talking about the supernatural intervention of God where He brings help or aid or strength to His people. And when we speak about blessing in that way, it's not just limited to the activity of God because we can also do things as human beings to bless others. We, we can't do it like God does, but, but we can do things to bring help or strength to others to help make their circumstances or situation better. When someone is in our church and they're facing a very serious surgery, it's, it's not uncommon for friends or Sunday school class church family to, to put together a meal for that family so that they can feed that family and that family won't have to wor worry about getting food for a couple of days. That's a, that's a way we can bless our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, when it comes time for Christmas and, and we find a family in the church or a family in the community that, that is struggling financially and is having a hard time being able to 
to get Christmas toys. We can, we can bless that family by, by taking some of the abundance that we have and buying toys for that family and their children. That's a way that we can bless people. Now, one of my favorite television shows, and it's not on TV actively anymore. You have to watch it on, on, on streams now. But one of my favorite TV shows was the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Any of you remember this show? Um, you, it, each week, the producers of this show would, would give us the story of a family who was in a desperate situation, both financially as well as physically within their home. It might be a child who was bound to a wheelchair in a home that was not wheelchair friendly and, and, and was not able to get around to certain rooms, and so they needed to, to, to renovate that, that house. It might be a, a family who had children with special needs that were living in a home that was not able to accommodate their special needs. Uh, it might be a home where, where the father of the home had passed away and, and the family was now struggling just to try to have enough to make the mortgage payments and the house was in disrepair and there was nobody to help them. But you remember every single week, the producers of the show would, would gather this family together, tell us the story, and Ty, the host of the show, would, would say, well, we're sending you off to Disney World for a week, right? And they'd send them to Disney to go and, and, and have a family vacation. And then hundreds, if not thousands of people would descend upon that lot. And in the course of a week, they would totally tear that house down to its foundation and rebuild another structure there from the ground up. Strangers would come just to try to bless someone else. And we all know the big kind of reveal, right? The, 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 the big moment of the show was when they would bring the family in and there would be a giant bus that would be covering up the view of the house and the family would be standing and there'd be eager anticipation and they would say, move that bus, right? And the bus would move and the family would fall apart. Now, my wife will tell you, I'm not an overly emotional person, but I would cry every single week when they would move that bus for some reason. I would just turn into a blubbering idiot. You know, and 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 because there was such joy. And and in even in an imperfect way, when we saw that show, we saw an imperfect attempt by the world to try to bless others. And in, in, in those cases, there was unmerited favor and grace that was shown because there was nothing that anyone in the family had done to deserve the gift of a new house. It was unmerited favor. And there was no compelling reason for hundreds of people to give up a week of their lives to labor all through the night to build a house for complete strangers. It was just the desire to bless someone else. So we understand blessing in that way in, in, in kind of a divine intervention from God. But how do we understand this particular situation where we bless Him? We know that there isn't one thing that we can do as finite created beings that can help or strengthen an infinitely powerful and sovereign God. When we speak of blessing God, we're not talking about doing something that increases God's quality of being in any way. God is completely perfect in all of His attributes. He is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, completely self-sustaining. God needs nothing from us, His creation. So when we say bless the Lord, we're not speaking about blessing Him in the same way that He blesses us. When we, when we sing blessings to God, we're not increasing anything within Him. So what does it mean to bless Him? When we bring blessing to God, we are in essence bringing an exclamation of gratitude and praise and thanksgiving to Him. We are verbally showering God with praise in such a way that glory and value and worth and esteem are all being directed upwards to Him and Him alone. When we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, we are directing all worth, all value, all esteem upwards to our God. We are centering our thoughts on Him and we are directing all of our affections towards Him in that moment. This is what David means in Psalm 103. And it serves as a powerful psalm for us to regularly meditate on in worship. <clears throat> Specifically, David is blessing God for His redemptive works in His people. 
And so in your notes, there are going to be a whole lot of blanks there. There's going to be a whole lot of subpoints, and I don't want you to get bogged down by them. I just want to be able to kind of exegete and explain the psalm. But in a holistic way, when we read Psalm 103, what we understand is this, this main truth, that God alone deserves our deepest worship because of His righteous character, His redemptive works, and His eternal faithfulness. When you read David's psalm from top to bottom, what we see is a psalm of worship to God, a psalm that is directing worth and praise and value to God in such a way, a holistic way, and he's praising God specifically, as we're going to see when we break down these verses, he's praising God because of his righteous character, who he is, his redemptive works, what he has done, and his eternal faithfulness, that he is always dependable and true. So there are really two main thoughts that we see. And the first of those we see just in the first verse and a half of the psalm, in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, we see that this is a picture of the authentic worship of a ransomed soul. What we see in Psalm 103 is a picture of worship, but not just general worship. We are seeing authentic worship. We're seeing deep, heartfelt worship that is born from someone who has experienced the grace and the mercy of God in salvation. David begins and ends this psalm with a very short doxology of praise. There's a rhythmic cadence within these words as he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Many of you remember when we were younger, there was a chorus that we used to sing that, right? We used to sing that over and over and over again. But this is more than just a praise song. When when we come to Psalm 103 and we just take away verses 1 and 2, and we we snatch them out, we miss the entire context of why David is praising the Lord. It's not just a generic praise tune. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. This is the anthem of a soul that has been redeemed by the grace and the mercy of God. This is a song of worship. And David isn't just blessing God because God has demonstrated some temporal blessings such as unforeseen financial aid or the gift of a new child. He's blessing God for the spiritual benefits that God has brought to him in salvation. David is meditating on the truth that he himself is an unrighteous sinner standing before an infinitely holy and righteous God. And as such, David understands that he deserves to be eradicated and wiped before the face of the Lord. And yet he says in verse 10 that while he stands before God, that he knows in that moment, verse 10 says, God does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. This is a man who has experienced grace, mercy, forgiveness, and restoration. And this is a man that understands that because he's experienced those things personally, the only rightful response in that moment is worship. It's the authentic worship of a ransomed soul. And in this opening doxology of three verses, David gives us three truths about what authentic worship is. The first of those is that authentic worship ascribes blessing to the Lord and not to self. Genuine True, authentic worship ascribes blessing to the Lord. It begins with praising Him. It begins with focusing our hearts on Him. This isn't a prayer of Jabez type prayer where we cry out to God to bless me and to increase my territory. We have a lot of talk in the church today about how we should seek the blessing from God But that's not David's purpose in Psalm 103. He's not coming to ask God for anything. He's not coming to say, God, bless this and bless this. And God, I need your blessing here and your blessing there. He's coming to God and he's doing exactly the opposite. He's saying, God, I don't want you to bless me. You've already blessed me more than I deserve. I want to bless you. He's meditating on all God is and all he has done. And his natural response is, bless the Lord. And we must understand that true, authentic, and genuine worship is not when we gather together in a church to get emotionally hyped up on unbiblical platitudes about how God's greatest purposes in our lives is to heap down material prosperity upon us in the here and now. 
We understand <clears throat> that as Christians, we are children of God who belong to a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. The scriptures testify to that. And we understand that the word of God says in Ephesians that our God wants to do exceedingly abundantly more than all we could ask or imagine. That is true. And we know that James, the brother of Jesus, said that you do not have because you do not ask. You have not because you ask not. But even James warns us right after that and says, but even when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask because you want to spend it on your passions. That's why God doesn't give us some of the things that we ask for. <clears throat> and certainly there comes times in our life when we need to ask for God's blessing upon our family, upon our church, upon our community, upon our nation. But we need to understand that authentic worship begins not by coming to seek God's blessing for ourselves, but by ascribing blessing to the Lord. But secondly, he tells us that authentic worship encompasses the totality of our being. <clears throat> Genuine worship not only blesses the Lord, but David says, it's my soul, it is all that is within me. It's a holistic response of worship. It's a response that encompasses the totality of who David is. Everything within David in this particular moment is feeling a need to sing, to ascribe worth and value and glory to God. You know, in my experience, I've been in the Christian I've been a believer, been in the church for, well, I've been in the church for 50 years. I've been a believer for about 30 of those. <clears throat> and it's been my experience that too often when we talk about worship, we focus and measure the wrong metrics when we talk about worship. It's not necessarily anything evil within us. It's just that we have this tendency to focus on the wrong things. Like attendance in a public gathering, we, we measure that as worship. I'm, I'm here this morning, I'm worshiping because I'm in the building. Or we sing the songs that were directed to us by the song leader, so we say, yes, I worship because I sang the praise songs. Or, or we put money in the offering plate, which is in itself an act of worship, and we say, well, I worshiped through an offering. But, but David here is talking not just about checking boxes. You remember, some of you that are, that are my age would remember when there was a time when we came to church and you, you had your offering envelopes and on the offering envelopes in the top right-hand corner of the envelope was a series of boxes. You remember this? And it would say, church attendance. And you got to check that box because you were there that day, right? And then it had attended Sunday school. And then it had Bible read daily, which was the one that was skipped the most, I think, or lied about the most, one or the other, Right? And, and then it had giving worship or, you know, shared the gospel, which was another one that we had a hard time checking. And the idea was that we measured these things as, a, as an act of faithfulness and, 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 and we kept records about how many people read their Bible that week and how many people were attending church on, on the basis of that checkbox. And the problem is that that's the mentality many of us have when we think about worship. I went to church I sang songs, I put offering in the plate, I worshiped. But David is not saying, I worshiped through these metrics. He's saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. It's a, it's a holistic totality that is directing worship and praise to God in that moment. I think to myself, how many times did we show up with check boxes and sing the songs and leave the church building having never really having a personal encounter with the living God? I can look back on my times growing up and I can tell you hundreds of times I showed up at church and checked a bunch of boxes and put, a, put an envelope in a plate and left that place that day and never really encountered God. How many times have we done everything expected of us and jumped through all the religious hoops and never worshiped God at all that day. Authentic worship encompasses the totality of our being, and it goes deep within our soul. Genuine worship is the redeemed soul's rightful response to the unmerited grace and mercy of God. But thirdly, he shows us that authentic worship begins with acknowledging the holiness of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. 
The psalmist recognizes that God is so holy that even his name is distinct and separate from all creation. Bless his holy name. The Jews, they had such fear and reverence for God that when God revealed his name to Moses and he revealed his name to be Yahweh, I am, when God revealed his name, they took so seriously the commandment not to take the name of the Lord in vain that they were afraid to write God's name in totality so they would only write the consonants and not write the vowels when they would write out the name of God for fear that they would not be revering him rightly, that they would write his name imperfectly because they understood that God is totally other than us in all his ways. Over and over again, God chides his people for their sin. And when he does so, he not only says they violated his commands, he says, you have profaned my holy name. True worship means that each time we come into this place, we understand that we are not just coming into a religious assembly to go through ritualistic motions, but we are coming as a gathered people to stand in the presence of the one true living and holy God of the universe. Now we sang that song a second ago, Is He Worthy? Is He Worthy? We weren't just singing that song because it's a song that David chose and put on the screen for us today. We were singing that because in this room today, the God of the universe dwells and He alone is worthy. He is holy. He is totally separate from us in all His being, perfectly righteous in all His ways. This God that we worship is not like, the, like us, and because of He is not like us, He deserves all of our praise. And if we're ever going to experience authentic worship, we must pause and acknowledge the holiness of our God. We see this as a psalm, which is an authentic song of a ransomed soul. But then the psalmist goes into great detail after that to show us not only do we bless the Lord, but why we bless the Lord. He shows us the rightful reasons we bless Him. He doesn't just say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. He says, here's why we worship Him. Now the central hinge of Psalm 103 is verse 8 when it tells us that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The reason why we bless God is because that's who He is. And right worship revolves around praising God for who He is and what He has done. And so everything the psalmist says in Psalm 103 builds off of the fact that we worship a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, who is merciful and is gracious. In verse 3, David says, don't forget his benefits. And this is important for us because he's, he's reminding us that there is a tendency in our hearts, a tendency in our lives to forget the things that God has done for us. I call this gospel amnesia. Gospel amnesia is where we fundamentally know some things to be true spiritually because we've been in church, we've been exposed to God's word, we've been exposed to God's truth. If I say to you, God is a gracious God who does not deal with us according to our sins. If you've been in church a long time, you know that to be true. The problem is that we tend to forget that when we operate in the day-to-day -day course of our lives. And we forget that the God that we, that we are connected to is a gracious God. And instead, sometimes we see Him as a capricious God who likes to punish people. We forget what we fundamentally know to be true because we have this tendency to constantly forget things that are true about God. We need not to forget His benefits. And this is why worship is vital to our lives, because personal and corporate worship are designed to be regular times of remembrance of the glory of God and of His works in our lives. We need regular doses of gospel truth in worship to keep these benefits before us and to increase our adoration of God Almighty. And so there are three things, three reasons that God tells us, or David tells us, we worship the Lord. Three reasons. Number one, we worship Him because of His gracious works in salvation. These are found in verses 3 through 7. I'm not going to read all of them right now. We've already read over them, but I'm going to allude to what He tells us. He gives us several characteristics, uh, several works that God has worked that we praise Him for. And number one, we praise Him because 
He forgives our sin. Verse 3 says, we don't forget his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. The idea of iniquity here is the picture of a massive spiritual debt that we have accumulated before God because of our sinful choices. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. What does wage mean? Wage means something that you earn because of something that you've done. You work a job and you go to work every day and you work hard and at the end of the day you earn a wage. And the same thing happens spiritually with us and God. Except the reverse is opposite. We stand before God and over the course of our life we make many, 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 many sinful choices and every single one of those choices come at a personal price. There is a cost to every single one of them. And so the more we sin, the more we accumulate before God a sin debt. That's the iniquity of our sins. That's the picture of iniquity here. And the picture of forgiveness means that God, in His grace and mercy, when we come to Him by faith, when we trust in what Christ has done for our salvation, the Bible says that God forgives our sin. He forgives the debt. The book of Romans tells us that He takes the record of our wrongs and He nails it to the cross. And it is marked, paid in full. He has forgiven us of our iniquity. He forgives our sin. But the second reason work that we praise him for is that he heals our spiritual sickness. The second part of verse 3 says he not only forgives all of our iniquity, he heals our diseases. Now certainly we know that God intervenes in our lives many times in the course of human suffering to demonstrate his power by healing physical infirmity. My stepdad, who's probably watching today, recently was diagnosed with a form of cancer, and he's been undergoing cancer treatments. And he is now in remission, and we praise God for that because we know that God has healed him right now of that cancer. He did so through the use of the medicine, but he also did so through his sovereign mighty hand. We know that God heals sickness But specifically, this is not what I believe David is talking about here because in context, David is talking about redemption. And so when he's saying that he heals us of our diseases, I believe the disease that he's most likely referring to here is the spiritual sickness of sin. And that the grace of God not only forgives us of our sin, but it changes our will and our desire so that we don't want to pursue sin like we did before. You see, as sinners, we are sick and we are, we are, we are suffering from a spiritual malady that wants to pursue sickness with all of our, sin with all of our being. But when God comes into our lives to forgive us of our sin, He changes us. He performs a spiritual heart surgery upon us where He takes that diseased, dead, cold heart of sin and He removes it from us and He puts a new spiritual heart within us. He he heals us from our sin sickness. But thirdly, He redeems us from eternal death says in verse 4, He redeems your life from the pit. Now the pit here is likely eternal death and separation from God that we deserve because of our sinful rejection of Him. Again, we quoted a second ago and we said that the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. The rightful penalty for our sin is death. And the death that we are talking about here is not just physically dying at some point. It's not just that eventually our physical life will cease because we are sinners in a broken world. But it's a spiritual death. It's an eternal state of separation from God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins without spiritual life whatsoever. That sin has brought a cessation in our life of spiritual life altogether. And that God, when He redeems us, He redeems us from that state of eternal death. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, has made us alive in Christ. By grace, we have been saved. God redeems us from that death and He purchases us back from the spiritual pit of sin at the cost of the life of His Son. He redeems us from eternal death. But fourthly, He crowns us with love and mercy. 
It's the second part of verse 4. He says, He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. What is this? It's a picture of grace. It's not just that God saves us from our sinful choices, redeems us from spiritual death, but now God takes us into the throne room of heaven, into His presence. And think about this for a second. It's the picture of once traitorous rebels and enemies of God who stand before Him as He lays a crown upon our head. We were once enemies of God, enemy combatants. But He brings us into the throne room not to pronounce judgment, but to put a crown on our head. We are crowned with the steadfast love and mercy of God. Love and mercy become the identifying marks of our redemption and our union with Christ. This is a picture of grace. But the psalmist goes further and says that he satisfies our deepest longings. Verse 5, he satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He not only forgives our rebellion, but he chooses to satisfy the longings that caused us to rebel against him in the first place. You see, sin is just pursuing the creation rather than the creator. Sin is just pursuing something that is other than God. It's, it comes from a dissatisfaction in our heart with where we are and what we have in life. And so we begin to pursue things that are not God's best. And God comes and heals us of our spiritual sickness such that he satisfies us with himself. He relieves us of our truest spiritual hungers. This is why the psalmist says somewhere else, taste and see that the Lord is good. He satisfies our longings. And then finally, the final work that the psalmist tells us is that he works righteousness and justice for all. Verse 6. He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. We have a lot of talk in the world today about social justice. And we must remember that justice is not something that we bring about from a need for human fairness and equity. When we're talking about justice, we're not just talking about trying to make everything equal and fair. There's no way that we as humans can bring about true justice in this world because justice is something that can only come from God because only God alone is just in all His ways. No matter what we do, we are never 100% just in everything that we do. The Bible tells us that God does have a heart for the oppressed, that He cares for the plight of the widows and orphans, and that He comes to set free those who are imprisoned in bonds of oppression, and that we should care about justice in this world because our God cares about justice. And that as people, we should be actively working in all ways to bring an end to injustice and to bring true justice into our world. But we need to understand that true justice cannot come apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our God works righteousness and justice for all. We worship God because of His redemptive works, His gracious works and salvation. But secondly, we worship Him because of His steadfast and consistent character. We bless God and we worship God and we praise God not just because of the things He's done for us. We worship Him because of who He is, His character. We don't have time to spend a lot of time here, but let me give you several characteristics that the psalmist tells us about God. Number one, in His character, God is a God who restrains His righteous anger. Verse 9 says, He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. God does not stand over us in constant condemnation for our sinful choices. Romans 8.1, one, one of the most free and beautiful verses of the Bible, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God does not stand over us and, and, and pull out the record of our wrongs and stand over us and say, I can't believe you did that and you did that and you did that and you did that. He does not constantly beat us down for the choices that we made. He's right to be angry with us for our rebellion, but he graciously chooses not to operate in anger. Instead, secondly, he deals with us in grace. He restrains his righteous anger, but he deals with us in grace. Verse 10 says that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. 
This is unmerited favor. What we deserve is wrath. What we deserve is punishment. And yet God shows us favor not because we deserve it, but because it's His character. It's God choosing to give us favor when what we deserve is His disfavor. What we deserve is to be dealt with according to our choices. And sometimes as parents we understand that we have to make a hard decision not to act towards our children according to the consequences of their poor choices But sometimes we choose to act towards our children, giving them favor that they don't deserve. We don't punish them a lot of times in in direct response to the choices that they've made, but we, we choose to hold them accountable for their actions, but we show them favor because we understand that even though they don't deserve it, it's just the nature of parents to do that for their children. When we do this, we are displaying an imperfect picture of the grace of our God. He does not deal with us in anger. He chooses to deal with us in grace. But thirdly, He loves us with a measureless love. He loves us with a measureless love. Verse 11 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. The span of the love of God is equal to the heights of the heavens above the earth, the psalmist says. Now what is that? It's a measureless span. Right now, we have satellites that we have launched into space that have telescopes on them that are so precise, they can, they can be just, you know, a few hundreds of thousands of miles from our planet, but they can pierce into the vastness of space and they can find celestial objects that are millions of light years away from our planet. And they can show us what those galaxies and, and, and things look like. Think about that. Millions and millions of light years. And yet, they have never invented a telescope that can reach the end of the universe and show us where the universe ends and heaven begins. As far as the heavens are above the earth... That's how great His steadfast love is towards us. What is it? It's a measureless love. He loves us with a measureless love. Not only that, He displays for us an infinite mercy. Verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. The psalmist says here that God takes the reality of the sinful choices that you and I have made, and He separates them from us. He removes them from us. So the question is, where could God possibly take our sinful choices once He's forgiven them? Where could He take them where we won't come against them anymore? How could He take them so far away from us that we won't stumble over them later on in life, that we won't go back and remember them? The Bible says He removes them as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Well, if you got on a plane today and you decided to fly east and you were going to fly east as far as you can until you finally reached west and started flying west, would you ever be able to do it? No. You would continue to fly east an infinite amount of time and at no point in time you could fly up there for 365 days and at no point in time flying 365 days straight would you ever start flying west. It's an infinite span. That's how far He's removed the reality of your sinful choices once you receive the salvation of God. He displays an infinite mercy and He demonstrates a tender compassion. Verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. I have four sons, most of you know that, and I love each and every one of my sons more than I could ever adequately define. And I try to be a compassionate dad on each one of them. I try to be a dad that knows that, they, that I love them always, no matter what. But I'm an imperfect example of that love. <laughs> I'll even confess. Um, so a couple of days ago, night before last, our son Josh, who was here, came into our bedroom. He's been dealing with sinus infection for a few days and came into our bedroom and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Dad, uh, I think I have an ear infection. And my response was, 
I'm sorry, and I went back to sleep. That's a terrible example of compassion. I had absolutely no compassion on Josh at that point. His mother had all compassion and got up and took care of him, and I went back to sleep. Our God is not like that. The compassion of our God towards us is perfect and never failing, and there is never a time when God loses compassion towards His children. We worship God because of His gracious works and salvation. We worship Him because of His steadfast and consistent character. But finally and quickly, we worship Him because of His eternal nature and His sovereign rule. From verses 14 through 22, God contrasts the temporal and feeble nature of humankind with the eternal, constant, sovereign nature of Almighty God. In verses 14 through 16, He reminds us of the transient and temporal reality of our human existence. The psalmist says, The Lord remembers that we are dust. We are made from the dust of the earth, and one day all of our earthly members will decay back into dust. The psalmist compares us to the grass and the flowers of the field. And in springtime, the fields are rich with green grass and flowers begin to bloom. However, eventually the dryness of summer comes and begins to take its toll. And by fall... It becomes a season of decay, and by winter, the grass is turned brown and the flowers are gone. We are temporal. And the reality is that all of us are living a temporal human existence, and that life as we know it here will not last. Just yesterday, I spoke to a son about his father. His father is a man who I love deeply, a man who has had a tremendous impact on my life over the last 12 years. And his father is in poor health, possibly entering into the final days of his life on this earth. The grass is turning brown, the flowers are about gone in his life. And yet in the midst of this temporal earthly existence, the psalmist says that we can hold on to and we can worship someone who exists outside of our physical world and transcends our human existence. While we are like the, f- the fading grass, the psalmist says... In verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And it is on those who fear Him. And God's righteousness is also everlasting to His children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. The psalmist tells us two things about our God here in closing. Number one, our God is eternally faithful to His promises. While our human existence may be temporal, the psalmist says the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternally faithful. And one thing that is going to last in this world is the eternally faithful and steadfast love of God towards those who rightfully fear and worship Him. God is always faithful to His promises, especially His covenant promise that for those who fear Him and follow His commandments, while our life may end in this world, our God has promised that our lives can continue forever in a better and more perfect world beyond this one. He's eternally faithful to His promises, but He is also universally sovereign over all creation. Verse 8 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. You see, our God has a throne, but it is not established on this planet. At least not yet. It will be one day. And our God has a kingdom, but His kingdom is not limited by geographical boundaries. See, the God that we came in here and worshipped a few minutes ago in song, the God that we sang, is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? That God sits on a throne that is higher than any castle that anyone can construct. And His kingdom stretches the span of the universe and includes every star in the heavens and every orbital mass that currently spins around them. Our King is sovereign. He is universally sovereign over all creation. This is why the psalmist ends by saying in verses 20, 21, and 22, Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty ones who do His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts. This word host probably refers to the stars and the planets in heaven. Bless the Lord, all His works and the places of His dominion. 
We praise God because of his righteous works and salvation. We praise God because of his steady and consistent character. And we praise God because of his eternal nature and sovereign rule. Thanks, DJ. I appreciate you waking everybody up. This God and this God alone deserves our deepest worship and adoration. And we bless Him today above all else. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Amen? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? As we close this morning, as we prepare to leave this place today where we've come together and worship, my, my hope and my prayer for all of us is that as we leave here today, we can echo the words of the psalmist and we can say, you know, it's not just that I went to church. It's not, just that I, it's not just that I engaged in singing some songs and checked some religious boxes. But today I went and encountered the living God of the universe, the one who is sovereign over all creation. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Every molecule in my body right now, may it be directed as a song of praise and worship to the one true living God. And maybe today you are here in this building or maybe today you're watching online and, and that is not a song that you can sing right now. And the reason why is because you've never truly surrendered your heart and life to the Lord. And while you may go through some external acts of, of, of worship, singing songs and attending church and doing good things, none of them are really done as a, as a true, authentic worship to the Lord because you've never surrendered your heart and life to Him. And you can't praise the Lord for His grace and His mercy and His redemptive works because you've never, ever repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for salvation. And maybe today the Holy Spirit has made you aware of your need for a Savior. And if you're in this room, I invite you before you leave today just to, just to come see me and say, hey, can you talk for a moment? I'll be glad to share with you a little bit, pray with you and help you to understand how you can know, how you don't have to leave here today speculating or guessing or hoping that you've been forgiven, but you can experience what the psalmist has written here to be the reality of your life. And maybe you're watching online today and, and you need to talk to somebody. You can see on the screen my email address and my cell phone number and you can contact me on that and I'll be glad to share with you how you can know the Lord today. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you in your faithful word. We thank you for this series through the Psalms this summer and all the things that you've shown us about your greatness and your glory. And may we close this series out by being able to say as the people of God that we want to bless you, God. We don't want to come here today just asking you to bless us again. We don't want to just come here today asking for more from you. We want to come here today and we want to declare your worth and your value and your glory above all else because of what you've already done what you've already done in your redemptive works and salvation because of who you are in your steadfast and consistent character and because you alone are eternally sovereign over the universe. God, may we worship you with all of our being. Thank you for being faithful to your people and your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.